Hey everyone! Welcome to the RUF at TC podcast. RUF is a community on campus learning about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. For more information about and ways you can support RUF at TCU, please visit ruf.org slash TCU. Well, I'd like to start tonight by saying that you can't live without the end in view. You can't live without the end in view. Aristotle knew it, and so do we, whether we speak of it or not. It is deeply entrenched in our beings, whether we're Christians or not. To live as end-oriented people is to be human. Now, when I say end, I mean to speak of some goal for your life, some great horizon that orients the trajectory of your life in the present. And whatever that horizon is, whatever is in your sight, it is to this that you are organizing your life. So it really isn't a question of if you have some grand vision for life, no, or if you believe you're headed somewhere, no. Rather, the question is, what end are you living for? Or said otherwise, what is the vision? What is your vision of the good life? Well, if you were like me in college, the vision was get a job, get married, have kids, coach sports, go on vacations, care for my neighborhood. And all of these things were really good things in themselves, but I suggest not by themselves. More on that in just a moment. But what is it for you? What is the horizon that you're currently living toward? Have you ever considered what is the happily ever after for you? How does that story end for you? What is it? What is it? What are the details of it? What is your raison d'etre, your reason for living, your horizon, your vision of the good life? You see, moral philosophers, theologians, and average Janes and Joes have known that all men seek happiness. And I'm not talking about the fleeting kind, that fleeting sense of delight that you experience from time to time, say, on a bungee jump, or when you acquire a new thing, like a new car. No, you see, I'm talking about something much more richer. I'm talking about joy. That sense of well-being or flourishing that attends the core of who we are despite the details and circumstances in our life. That's what I'm talking about. It is this desire for happiness that drives our lives. In his most famous essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis remarks on the strength of these desires for those who profess to know Christ. He notes, Indeed, if we consider, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, I love this right here, this is this famous line, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday or a vacation for you non-Brits at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What is he suggesting? Here it is. That the greatest danger to the well-lived life and to one of the Christian are small desires. 
small desires. Not the desire itself primarily, but the object of that desire. That is, what we want. Okay, why share all of this with you as we begin? As we begin especially this last lap around the book of Revelation. Well, if truth be told, this is why I chose the series. These last four chapters right here, 19, 20, 21, 22. That's why I chose this series to do. To get you better acquainted with the end. With the goal. With the vision of the good life that John is giving us. Not only did Aristotle and Lewis and every politician offering you a vision for the good life know it, the Apostle John knows it as well. So how does he, knowing our proclivity to weak desires, seek to woo us? To capture us? To capture our hearts into seeing what is true for us? And the answer is simple. He gives us a more sweeping, a more grand, a more beautiful picture of our true end. And this picture is meant to act as a defibrillator to our half-asleep hearts, shocking them out of their slumber to truly live and to truly long. John is giving us now the final chapter of history itself. He is picturing heaven itself. And the picture is meant to awaken us us out, all these, as all of his images have, to see things rightly. And here we go. What is that shocking picture? What is it? Well, we'll break it down tonight in three ways. But the first shock is this. That heaven, heaven, is a wedding feast. That's meant to shock us. Let me show you how. What is John doing here to show us what his heaven is like? John is showing us, now that Babylon is gone forever, that there is explosively loud praise going on. Take a look at verse 6 with me. Did you catch it? He tells us that there is a, a great multitude saying with a loud voice, a great crowd, like imagine the football stadium at fever, at fever pitch, and then consider that like a peep, a peep, compared to what John is hearing. Secondly, loud waters. How many of you have ever been to Niagara Falls? Right? Here's what that sounds like in comparison. It's like a whisper compared to what John is hearing. And mighty peals of thunder are but snaps of the finger compared to the roar of all of heaven. And here's the question. What is causing this? What is bringing forth this type of response? John shows us. A wedding. A wedding. A marriage. He is saying that heaven is like a wedding. The first image that John gives us of heaven is as a great wedding. A bride has been made ready. And she sees her groom at last. And he, her, and there, y'all, is joy consummate. Consummate joy. Because the bride and the groom are soon to be together. One of the best parts of my job is when I get to perform weddings of graduating students. And because I'm positioned at the very front, I can see everybody. And usually and traditionally, when a wedding happens, when the music cues, the mother of the bride stands and everybody turns to the back of the church or the sanctuary or wherever they're being, whatever's happening, 
And everybody turns to look at the bride. But I get a different vantage point. My first look is always right to my left. So that I can see the groom. I get to see his face. And I get to see his face as his bride is prepared, now coming to him. And without fail, it's ecstatic joy brought out by just warm tears. Because the woman whom he loves will finally be his. Oh, it's beautiful. Why do I share this with you? Because John is saying that's what heaven is like. And we need that image. But he's not just saying that heaven is like a wedding. Did you catch what else he says in verse 9? Look with me. Verse 9 tells us it's not just a wedding. He says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Secondly, wedding heaven is a wedding feast. You see, there's more. Heaven is a great feast too. I want you to think of the best meal that you've ever had or the best party that you've ever been to. The greatest celebration that you've ever partaken of. And I want you to understand something about what John is telling us, about what heaven is like. You see, why does John show us these images of wedding and feast? I mean, think about it. These are pictures of joy and mirth and delight. Why does he do this? Simple. Because that's what heaven's like. That's the best way He can put it. It's the best way He can show people who need to be woken out of their slumber is that it's about joy. In other words, this is telling us that what lies at the heart of where our story is headed is not, is patentedly not what's plastered over Hallmark cards everywhere. It's not sentimentality. It's not sap. We're not going to end up as genderless cherub babies playing harps all day, y'all. What a boring picture of what heaven is. Who wants to go there? But a marriage? A wedding feast? Now you're in. Now you're longing. Now you're seeing. And this is exactly what Jesus Himself said it was. Matthew chapter 22, verse 2. Jesus' words. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for His Son. Jesus, what's heaven like? A wedding feast? A party? A celebration? Don't you see it? The images John gives of heaven are pleasure images. Do the math. Wedding. And all that attends that. And feast. Why? Because our great end, our sumum bonum, is all about delight and joy. It is meant to get at your imagination to make you long for this. Because in a world where there is suffering, a world where there is pain, a world where there is loss and failure and fracture and death, and it seems like it comes like waves and it never ends, John is saying, see the feast. Look at the wedding. That's our great end. That's the horizon that every Christian ought to be setting his or her eyes on. And by way of application tonight, I hope this challenges your thinking. 
or the way that you understand not just heaven, something we'll talk about the next two weeks, but what lies at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Y'all, it's about joy. It's about celebration. Our story is headed. You think I'm lying? John, same writer, in his Gospel, chapter 2, tells of Jesus' signs, His miracles. His first sign, does any of you remember what it was? His calling card miracle. Hi, I'm Jesus. This is what I'm about. Do you remember what it was? It wasn't casting out demons from somebody. It wasn't even raising the dead. You know what it was? It was about making sure there was more wine so the party could go on. Do you understand what Jesus has come to do? To secure your joy. To secure delight. Oh, if you're understanding, either as a Christian or as someone who is investigating Christianity, if you're understanding at what lies at the heart of the good news isn't that Jesus has lived, died, and rose again to bring us into joy, then you've really misunderstood what Christianity is. It isn't really, hang with me on this, it isn't really about the forgiveness of sins. What? I thought that was, I thought this whole thing was about. To forgive me and get my butt out of hell. And get me into heaven. Ah, 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 ah. That itself is only penultimate to the ultimate goal of seeing your God's face and feasting with Him forever. That's the whole reason sin needs to be dealt with. So that you and that me can have God's face again around His table to celebrate. You see, here's the thing. The ultimate joy of God and man being reunited forever, that they may enjoy what is lost long ago in the garden, is what stands at the very center of Christianity. So Christianity is simply not an invitation to become a more moral person. It isn't really even about being a more conclusive person. It is an invitation to become, all by sheer gift, participants in a cosmic story of joy. Oh man, this challenges me because I'm a cynic. And because I'm so critical. And because I just don't want to believe that the story ends well. I just don't want to believe that the story ends happily ever after. But dadgummit, Revelation 19. The story ends happily ever after. That's not all that John shows us. You see, lest you be lulled back to sleep, John doesn't want you merely to know and see that heaven is a wedding feast, but he also wants you to see that heaven is a wedding feast that we've been invited to or that we've been called to. You see, up to now, I've just said, we've just been watching this happen. But there's something that's deeper going on. John wants to shock his readers with something else. Remember, these are hearers and readers who are struggling with faith. Many are being persecuted to those seven churches. Others have simply grown bored with being Christians. The advantages, the pop, had worn thin. And what they and we need to see is that this is a wedding feast. Here it is, that they have been included in. They're not mere observers. Listen, they are participants at the wedding feast. They have been verse 9, invited, summoned, or called, in other words. And being there is to be blessed. 
And not that John has been, has been told uh, prior to this, that he's not that he's been saying that anything has been false, but notice what he says. He says, these, blessed is anyone who, blessed is, are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says, these are true words of God. Now just think about that for a second. This is crazy. A ton has been said in the book of Revelation to encourage the faint-hearted and the listless. Think about it. The cosmic Christ from Revelation chapter 1. The Lamb on the throne in, verses, in chapters 4 and 5. But only when the future destiny of God's people shows up do we get this symbolic underscoring emphasizing something. And what is being emphasized? The promised blessing for all those who participate in this feast. Indeed, C.S. Lewis was right. Joy is the serious business of heaven. I love it. I love it. And I want you to think for a moment. I want you to think about this. The world, if you're seeing this through the lens of the world, through the lens of even Babylon, the eyes of the powerful and the wealthy and the rich, you know who shows up at feasts. It's the powerful, the wealthy, and the rich. It's the elite. But when you begin to see how other parts of the Bible speak about who shows up at this feast, oh, something lovely emerges. Go read Matthew 22. Go read Luke 14. And you know who you'll find around the table? It's outsiders. It's nobodies. It's the vagabonds and the ne'er-do-wells. It's the screw-ups and the hacks. It's the train wrecks. It's people like me. It's the people like you. There's a table waiting. There's a table with your name on it. A little place setting right there. It says, come to my feast. You'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. You see, it's folks like you and me who somehow end up at the feast. One of the greatest laughs of heaven, I think, will be me looking around and wondering, how the heck did I end up here? Somebody was just looking at the wrong guest list. Surely that has to be the case. You know, that's the way when I felt when I went to a friend of mine's wedding. My buddy married into a godly, very generous family. And when I was in grad school, I was told this, just get out there, which was the beautiful mountains of Colorado, and the rest will be taken care of. And you know what? It was. My accommodations were covered. The party was amazing. The live music was so much fun. The best food. I, y'all, I'm serious. I still remember the lamb for some reason. <laughs> and as the night was winding down after that great celebrative event, I don't even know if that's a word, I was sitting down with a friend and I just remember thinking, how did I end up here? What did I do to deserve to participate in this? And I didn't do anything. It was all the kindness of the host. Y'all, our great end is like a feast that goes on for eternity where course after course gets better. And, where, and we're there with all of our closest friends, our brothers and sisters, and all that have died in the Lord. And most importantly, we're eating at last face to face with Christ Himself. And you know what we'll do? We're going to linger long over our food. We're going to clink our glasses full of the best wine as we celebrate all that God has done to put us at that table. And all that He is. You know, have you ever had a moment like that? 
where your closest of loved ones were around the table, where the food was outstanding, no expense was spared, like I'm talking like fine china and silver, it almost seems wasteful, doesn't it? But you know what? Grace always is. Grace always is wasteful. It gives you way more than you need. That's the kingdom of the feast. You know, if you've ever had that, you don't want it to end. And did you ever consider for just a moment that maybe heaven had broken through to tease you just a little bit with an appetizer of what's to come? If so, count yourself blessed. I said it over and over again that John was a consummate Old Testament theologian. And the book, of Old, the book of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Isaiah tells of a time where there would be feasting at God's banquet and all peoples, not just the Jews, would be welcomed to it out of sheer grace. And as we approach Easter a few weeks away, listen to the way that Isaiah merges the death of death itself and joyous feasting for all people. Listen to this. This comes from Isaiah 25, verses 6-9. through 9. You want to make like little calligraphy verses? This is the one you want, okay? <laughs> On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, there it is, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, rich food full of marrow. That's fat. That's what taste is. If you've ever struggled with eating disorders, heaven is going to be beautiful. You're going to eat and not worry. You're going to celebrate. If you're, if you're, if you're an alcoholic, you're going to drink and not worry. That's the great picture of what the feast is for you. I'll keep going. Of rich food, full of marrow. Of aged wine, well refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, and He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him. He might save us. This is the Lord. And we have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. You know what this means? That in the end, we'll all be shown to be wedding crashers. Not one of us deserves to be there. Not one of us. And yet we'll be treated as royalty. Guests at Jesus' table. And in His kindness, He makes paupers fit to appear. I love what Robert Capone, Capon says. He says this, Grace does not sell. You can hardly give it away <laughs> because it works only for losers. And no one wants to stand in their line. Oh, friends, won't you come to the feast? Won't you? Let me keep trying to press in on you. Let me try to woo you once more. Because John does. The greatest shock of this text that we've not touched on yet, John then writes, when he writes about this, is not only telling us that we will be guests at the banquet as wonderful and as beautiful as that is, imagine as well that the cathedral is full. That the groom stands and you and all the guests stand. 
The groom is ecstatic with joy that his day has come and you see it on his face. And in his excitement, he leaves. He leaves the place where he's standing beside best man and minister. And he begins to run to meet the bride. And where does he stop? Right in front of you. And tenderly grabs your hand and escorts you to the altar. You see the shocking thing that John wants to show us The third part of this image is not only that we're there at the wedding feast, but we are there as bride. We're not just attendees. We're the bride. The image of the intimacy that God has with His people has come to its well consummation. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, God's people had been known as His bride. You and me. Can you believe it? And our story over and over again is that we have run away from our faithful and kind husband. What will he do with us because of this? What will he do with the likes of you and me because of the way that we have treated him? Won't he do the very same thing that she, the bride, us, has done to her her whole existence? No. Never. In stark contrast, but not before He gives more grace. The text tells us in verse 8 that the bride, that all of God's people was made ready. How? She has been clothed with her wedding dress. She has been adorned with beauty, bright and pure. And the fine linen that she is now robed with and adorned with, her wedding garments, the text tells us, are the deeds of the saints. Now we might hear that and well say, wait a second here. I was by grades, I mean by grace, not grades, that'd be horrible, but by grace. (laughs) And you know what, dear friends, it is. These righteous deeds don't originate with us at all. They are given by God Himself. Much like Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, or Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13, God grants to us good works to do. And you know what that means? Even our good works are gifts of His grace. Salvation from beginning to end, shot right through, is always of the Lord and never of us. And our good works come from our being saved, not so that we might get it. Think about it. Our works, y'all, are a mess, even the best of them. They are so tainted with self-interest and pride. They are rarely done with love. So even our best works are, as Isaiah again says, but filthy rags. But do you know God? God in His kindness actually gives good works to us that we might just simply walk in them. That we may carry them out trusting that He will somehow, in the end, make them all perfect and beautiful. I was doing laundry this weekend. Surprise, I know. Um, And I caught this in my home. I want you to look. I was folding clothes. This is my family. Take a look. My three-year-old doing laundry. Y'all saw her folding job. (laughs) What do you think happened to those pants two minutes afterwards? I took them, I folded them, put them in the drawer. That's what Jesus does with our works, y'all. He gives them to us to participate in. And He perfects them. And He makes them beautiful. 
And it's like we're like a three-year-old make, like wreaking havoc with our good works, thinking that they're like something amazing and awesome. And our Father just smiles at them. He says, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. These are beautiful. They're beautiful in my eyes. This is what Jesus does for us. So much so that it's said to be the wedding dress of His people. That they're perfected by the works that He gives them to do, which are absolutely shot through with selfishness and pride, and somehow Jesus makes them beautiful. You know what that means? The bride is made beautiful by Jesus Himself. That His lovely, His sweet bride is made lovely by Him. You see, somehow in the economy of grace, all of our little finger paint art is hung on the walls of God's house, perfect in His sight. The bride is made beautiful, all because of the work of the Lamb. Again, Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has, here it is, clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The application is clear. Will you dare to see, dare to believe that Jesus has made you perfect and complete as His bride? The whole work of redemption can be summed up in this. That God has taken people who stabbed Him in the back and ran away from Him and has come in the flesh as Jesus to make them perfect, to make them a perfect bride for Himself at last. You know what this does? It gives you worth. It gives you weight. It gives you ballast in your identity. You are the beloved of Jesus. It's almost too intimate to speak of, and yet this is who we are. Where is the good news in all of this? Well, I think it's pretty simple. That Jesus will at long last finally have us. He'll finally have us as His bride. And there will be no more shame. And there will be no more tears or sorrow. The only ones that remain will be on His hands as He has wiped them from our face because He delights in His people so much. He has taken a wayward people and made them a faithful bride. He has changed us, made us ready for Himself. How do we know this? Well, not surprisingly, in a text read at weddings all the time, the Apostle Paul tells us, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Every wedding, believe it or not, is telling us this, if we'll have ears to ask. Now I'll ask you, where did He give Himself up? Well, you know, on the cross, as a lamb, the slain lamb, at the center of the throne. Do you see it? In closing, have you got a glimpse of what John is showing to sleepy Christians like you and me? Do you see how the story ends? And are you living like it in the present, in the here and now? In some, here's the point John is telling us, heaven is a wedding feast that we are invited to as a bride. The cross was a wedding promise. And in it, God says, I love you. And we will be together forever. You can't make yourself ready for me. So I'll make you ready for me. I'm coming back for you. It won't be long.
So we wait until he returns, saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and rescue your bride at last. Help us to live with longing. Help us to see that you love us. Help us to believe it. Do work on our unbelief. Help us to see the picture of a bride being loved by her groom. This is what you do for us, Lord, and it lies at the very center of all reality, the love affair between God and his people. Get that deep into our hearts, we pray, that it might change us, that we might live for you, and that we might wait well until we see you face to face. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.